Uh, this morning, we have a blessing to have Bruce Turner with us speaking. Um, for those of you, again, that are new with us, July is kind of a month where I get an opportunity to not teach and kind of sit back and listen and be a part. And we have some really gifted, amazing people that God's put in our church that can share God's worth with, words, word with us. Uh, Bruce Turner has been around for two years um, at our church, and Bruce is a college professor who teaches in seminaries, just a wealth of wisdom, and um, we're just really blessed to have him share from the Psalms with us this morning, and so can we pray for him as we get started, and we'll hand the mic off. Jesus, we thank you for Bruce. We thank you for everything that you've stored up within him, Lord. We thank you for his study time uh, these last couple weeks, and I just am asking God that you'd speak through him this morning. I pray that our hearts would be opened up to hear what it is that you have to share with us through Bruce this morning. May your word just do its work, God. You promise that it will not return void, and so we just allow you to have your way with us this morning and bless this time in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Give it up for Bruce, you guys. It's a great privilege for me to bring God's Word uh, to you this morning to encourage you, inspire you in your walk with Him. And we're going to be in the Psalms once again. So if you kind of open your Bible to the, around the middle, uh, that's where we'll be. Now just to remind you that the Psalms are, are not about reading someone else's blog experience with God um, or reading someone else's, uh, viewing someone else's Instagram experience. It's really instruction for us, isn't it? To instruct us in, in the ways of God and His character and to provide for us a variety of ways that we can respond to God's revelation of His character. It can also sharpen our desires as we read them. Now, if you're like me, if you've ever felt stuck in prayer, not sure how to pray, the Psalms give us a wonderful model for prayer. What is the theme of the book of Psalms? Well, it's really a library, isn't it? Uh, a library of, of God establishing his king on the throne forever. And we know that uh, the first, especially the first couple of books, there are five books of the Psalms, the first couple of books really focus on the Davidic covenant, David as a representation of the Messiah who was to come. And so books one, two, and then uh, reappearing in, in book five, we have Psalms that are attributed to David. And David's life really parallels the life of Christ. Think about how much Jesus, uh, in his earthly ministry, quoted from the Psalms and to talk about his own devotion to God. But we know that from the Psalms, even from Psalm 2 in, book, uh, in the introduction to the book of Psalms, that even in the very uh, first couple of chapters that we see the Messiah, it had to be more than a human ruler who was going to establish God's throne. There was a divinely appointed Messiah who was to come. So the purpose of the Psalms is really to help us to recognize how we can worship God in every circumstance of life as we anticipate, look forward to our coming king, the return of the king. As we know, there are lots of literary forms. Josh talked about it last week. It's almost like walking into a library and going to various places. We see praise psalms. We see royal kingship psalms. We see wisdom psalms. We see messianic psalms. We see psalms of trust and confidence and thanksgiving. But we also see psalms of lament, sorrow. There are, there's a language for every season of the soul. Well, we're going to focus today on lament psalms, the psalms that 
as we encounter evil or pain in our suffering in our world, we have that experience of angst and frustration, of disappointment, of grief and loss, of sorrow. And it's legitimate for us to bring those things before God. The Psalms teach us how to do that. It might be related to some external attack from an enemy, as we'll see in the Psalms, or maybe a, a trial in our lives, or just the evil in our world, or even the evil within us. What do we do with all these thoughts and feelings that we have? The Psalms show us the way. I don't know if you knew this, but about 60 out of the 150 Psalms are lament Psalms. It's about 41%. There's individual laments, there's corporate laments, but we see throughout the Psalms this trajectory of what starts as lament or sorrow or grief moving then toward praise. And even within the lament Psalms themselves, we see this movement that goes on. Many of these lament Psalms will conclude with praise. So that it starts out with a complaint or a petition request of God, a specific need that's brought before him. And it may not be resolved right away, but ultimately it ends in praise of God's name, of his sovereignty, of his person. There's a subcategory division within the Lament Psalms called the penitent psalms, penitential psalms. These are psalms of deep and intense prayers for forgiveness of sin. They include Psalm 51, and that's where we're going to be this morning. Psalm 51. This is about, uh, in, the, in the book two, um, in the Psalms, mostly of David, but Psalm 51. There's uh, humility, there's confession, there's godly sorrow, there's what's called contrition and brokenness, and then true repentance. And so, so we see all these things in Psalm 51. Now just to give you a little backstory on myself, I was born in Joyzee, New Joyzee, okay? And when I grew up there, we lived, uh, and when I was about, up till about seven years old, we lived uh, up the street from a government building. And this government building was almost like a park. Uh, it had a beautiful grass and trees, and then it had cement walkways meandering throughout. On the weekends, my brother and I, my older brother, and I would ride our bikes and climb trees down there at the government building. And one day we headed down there with a certain project in mind. Well, later on that day, our dad took a stroll, and he noticed there was some really nasty words written on the cement walkways in chalk. And he thought, I can't believe these parents would allow their kids to run unsupervised and do these kinds of things. Well, when he returned home, he noticed that our hands were filled with chalk. And needless to say, we were under the discipline. He brought us correction. And coached us through that process. Not only did we uh, admit that what we had done, he pointed out to us that we had done what was wrong, um, but also that we needed to uh, think about how it displeased him and acknowledge that we had displeased him, we had broke trust with our dad, and feel sorrow for that, uh, feel guilt, true guilt. And then out of, uh, you know, kind of restoring the family name, if you will, in the community, he sent us down back to this government building with uh, buckets and uh, spray bottles and brushes, and we went about the business of scrubbing all those words uh, off the sidewalk. In a similar way, uh, as parents, we are responsible for the discipline of our children, their correction, 
Um, God brings us to a place where we can restore our relationship with him. And that's what's happening here in Psalm 51. Our response to confrontation and uh, confession of sin and the whole process of repentance really needs work, doesn't it? Um, We know that confession is counterintuitive. It's much easier to summon that inner defense attorney uh, to pin the blame somewhere else. But to acknowledge our sin before God, that's what he wants to see. Well, in Psalm 51, we're going to read the superscription there, the little byline below uh, the number. And it says, To the choir master, a psalm of David, when Nathan the prophet went to him after he had gone into Bathsheba. Now, just to give you the backstory, this is from 2 Samuel chapters 11 and 12. David coveted Bathsheba, the wife of Uriah, and he violated commandment number 10, thou shalt not covet. And then he committed adultery with her, is thou shalt not commit adultery, commandment number seven. She reported to David that she was bearing his child. In an attempt to cover his tracks, he arranged for the murder of Bathsheba's husband, Uriah, on the battlefield. Uh, Thou shalt not murder, commandment number six. And he took Bathsheba as his wife, an act of theft, commandment number eight. In 2 Samuel 11, it says that David did what was evil in the eyes of the Lord. So God sent his prophet Nathan to David to confront him about his sin. This is in chapter 12. He told the king a parable about a rich man and a poor man. The rich man owned many lambs, while the poor man had this one ewe lamb, his prized possession that was almost like a daughter to him. And so the rich man, having a guest come over to visit, he went about and stole the poor man's lamb and slaughtered it and served it up, cooked it up, served it up for a meal. Well, David was incensed. He says, as the Lord lives, the man who has done this thing deserves to die. And he shall restore the lamb fourfold because he did this thing and because he had no pity. And Nathan turned and said, you are the man. The Lord then reminded David of all that he had done for him and asked this question, why have you despised the Lord, the word of the Lord, to do this evil in his sight? And then revealing, unfolding the consequences of David's sin. There would be a sword that would never depart from his household. Evil would be raised up. David would lose many of his wives. And the child that was born to Bathsheba would die. David's response, I have sinned against the Lord. And it's almost as if we get the sense with Psalm 51 that he turns aside to pen the psalm and acknowledge his sin before God. So would you stand with me as we read Psalm 51? Have mercy on me, O God, according to your steadfast love. According to your abundant mercy, blot out my transgressions. Wash me thoroughly from my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin. For I know my transgressions and my sin is ever before me. Against you, you only, have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight, so that you may be justified in your words and blameless in your judgment. Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity, and in sin did my mother conceive me. Behold, you delight in truth in the inward being, and you teach me wisdom in the secret heart. Purge me with hyssop, and I shall be clean. Wash me, and I shall be whiter than snow. Let me hear joy and gladness. Let the bones you have broken rejoice. Hide your face from my sins and blot out all my iniquities. 
Create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a right spirit within me. Cast me not away from your presence, and take not your Holy Spirit from me. Restore to me the joy of your salvation, and uphold me with a willing spirit. Then I will teach transgressors your ways, and sinners will return to you. Deliver me from blood guiltiness, O God, O God of my salvation, and my my tongue shall sing aloud of your righteousness. O Lord, open my lips, and my mouth will declare your praise. For you will not delight in sacrifice, or I would give it. You will not be pleased with a burnt offering. The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart, O God, you will not despise. Do good to Zion in your good pleasure. Build up the walls of Jerusalem. Then you will delight in right sacrifices and burnt offerings and whole burnt offerings. Then bulls will be offered on your altar. You may be seated. Father God, as we uh, walk through this psalm together, I pray that you would do your work, Lord, work in our hearts. Bring about conviction of sin. Lord, restore us to to, uh, the joy of our salvation. God, teach us ways we have displeased you and lead us in the everlasting way. We pray this in your name. Amen. We're going to go through each stanza briefly, um, as it's marked in the ESV. There's a beautiful symmetry balance here and progression that we see in this prayer. And it's interesting to watch how the the psalm develops. As we see in the very beginning, there's an individual uh, uh, request for restoration. And toward the end, we see that corporate response for the nation Israel. We see lots of metaphors and symbols and figures of speech. But really what is meant here is for us to feel this, for us to consider what it means to bring our sin before God, to connect with the emotion of this psalm. So it takes a lot of reading and rereading, pausing, pondering, making this prayer our own. And I encourage you to do that as we walk through. And we're going to be able to respond today in a time of communion, time of bringing our requests before God, bringing our sin before Him. I encourage you to do that. In verses 1 and 2, we see that uh, David will approach God uh, on the basis of his mercy and his steadfast love. It's beautiful. In the very opening request, we see that David runs to God. He doesn't try to figure it out himself. He calls upon God. He casts himself upon God's mercy. And notice in here that we see three different words used for David's evil transgressions and iniquity and sin in verses 1 and 2. So this cry comes out of this intimate relationship that David already has with God, this covenant relationship. He knows that God is a God of justice, but also a God of grace and mercy, and that he can run to him, and God welcomes him to come and receive forgiveness. So when I come to God, when you come to God, we can acknowledge that God is a God of grace, that grace that initially delivered us will once again deliver us. When sin uh, interrupts our communion with God, we've forfeited his blessings. God causes us to come before him. But you know, we don't try to clean up our own act by ourselves. We don't just make promises or try to work and, and work harder to live a good Christian life. We just simply ask for his forgiveness. His grace, his mercy is more than enough. It's abundant to meet our every need. 
in Exodus 34. It's a beautiful doctrinal statement about who God is, and it runs throughout the whole Old Testament. And it says this, the Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin, but who will by no means clear the guilty. So David is asking God, would you exterminate, wipe out, erase uh, my record of sins. Would you cleanse me and wash me? And this is referring back to those Old Testament sacrifices and ritual cleansings that the people of Israel uh, were required to do before God. But we know from the New Testament, from Hebrews, that those Old Testament sacrifices would not affect salvation. What God did was simply poured out his grace upon these people and it was on the people to come with a heart of confession, a heart of contrition and request for God's forgiveness in a spirit of repentance. And that's how David comes. In the New Testament in 1 John 1, 9, it says, If we confess our sins, God is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. So, so the question is, how, when's the last time we came before God and just threw ourselves upon his mercy and grace? His steadfast love. We move from uh, verses 1 and 2 then to the next stanza, verses 3 through 6. And acknowledging moves from these requests that are made of God to statements. Uh, from focusing on God himself to what the psalmist knows. And so not only approach God out of his mercy and his steadfast love, but then secondly, to acknowledge your sin before God. For I know my transgressions, and my sin is ever before me. This is no superficial confession, is it? David says, I was wrong. And you know, as parents, we train our children to admit fault, to admit responsibility, to fess up and say, I was wrong. In a spirit of contrition and prayer for restoration, this is the lament that David brings before God. God, here are my sins. I was wrong. And what we see is a soul that's deeply aware of sin, having offended God and in desperate need of his grace. Again, we have three words for the evil that, is, uh, that David has committed against God. It's transgressions and sin and then evil. It's important for us to recognize and to plunge the depths of our sin before God. In verse 3, sin is deep in David's awareness. He says, I know my iniquity, my sin is ever before me. And this is more than just a morbid introspection or as a really sensitive conscience. This came through the power of the Holy Spirit, through the prophet, the word of the Lord, through the prophet Nathan. We must acknowledge that we cannot repent of sin we do not confess. And we cannot confess what we do not see. And so we need to pray and ask God, would you please, as Psalm 139 says, search me, O God, and know my heart. Try me and know my thoughts. And see if there's any grievous way in me and lead me in the way everlasting. That's why we read God's word. It shows us where we have fallen short. The Holy Spirit is active through the word of God, through times of prayer, times of examination. That's why as a community, we come before God uh, at the Lord's table uh, as we examine ourselves to see where our relationship is with God or the things I need to confess. 
That's why we surround ourselves with brothers and sisters who will tell you the truth about your life. In verse 4, sin is also deep in its direction. David says, against you, you only have I sinned. Now did David commit sin against Bathsheba? Yes. Uriah? Yes. But ultimately, all sin is committed against God. So, so much so that David affirms God's justice. He said, you're right, God. There's no argument about the fact that I don't deserve, uh, I only deserve punishment. I don't deserve um, your mercy. We deserve judgment, not mercy. And so he comes before God and throws himself upon his mercies. In verse 5, sin is deep in its origin. He said, I was brought forth in iniquity. And so we admit that we have this propensity from birth to sin, right? We're not sinners because we sin. We sin because we're sinners. It's our very nature. And this goes back to Adam's uh, deed in the, evil deed in the garden to reject the word of God and to call his own shots, to be his own authority. And so David isn't bringing up an excuse for what he's done, but simply saying, God, you are completely other than I am. You are just, while I am corrupt, I am evil. And so David recognizing he cannot save himself, he must throw himself upon God's mercy. In verse 6, sin is deep in its nature. By praying about what is true, what God desires, the psalmist reveals the contrast. Currently, his sin is rooted not just in words and deeds or even thoughts, but in the inward places, in the innards, if you will, the secret heart. And this inner self displays disloyalty, duplicity, and foolishness. So David is saying, in a sense, God, this is what you want, but this is not what I am. Only God can do this transformative work, this work of restoration, of cleansing, washing, and bringing about a, creating a clean heart, a new heart in us. When was the last time that you and I have admitted our sin before God without bringing excuses? Then verses 7 through 12, asking God for restoration. So approaching God in his mercy, admitting our sin before God, acknowledging that, and then asking God to restore us. We see here several requests, three areas. The psalmist David prays that God would cleanse him. He prays that God would restore him to a state of purity. He prays for joy, that joy would be restored to him. And then finally, he prays that a right or willing spirit would be brought to him. Look at verses 7 and 9. The purging that, that occurs there in verse 7. Purge me with hyssop and I shall be clean. Wash me and I will be whiter than snow. So this goes back to those uh, ritual cleansings in the Old Testament that God required of his people. And again, it was more about the heart than just the going through the motions or the external acts. And the priest, once, uh, once a person, like a leper or someone who had touched a dead body, came before him, uh, he would purge them with hyssop, with blood or with water, and they would be declared clean. So that's what David is really confessing here. Now we know the Old Testament believers were given assurance through the sacrificial system, but we know that Jesus uh, gives us that complete assurance, that full assurance that his perfect sacrifice on our behalf has has made us clean. In Hebrews 9, it says, For if the blood of goats and bulls and the sprinkling of defiled persons with the ashes of a heifer sanctify for the purification of the flesh, 
how much more will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit offered himself without blemish to God, purify our conscience from dead works to serve the living God. So Jesus Christ, our great high priest, has accomplished this cleansing work for us. He paid for our sins on the cross and he renews us day by day. So the first request was for a restoration to a, a state of purity. The second one is to an experience of joy, verses 8 and 12. Now we know we can't create this joy or this happiness, this emotional high by ourselves, but it's by the result of God's forgiveness that David asked for God's pleasure, which results in the joy of heart. And this is a sense of settledness, of, of security and peace that comes from that reconciled relationship with God the joy of our salvation that's restored. And then finally, in verses 10 through 12, that heart of wisdom. It's a prayer for the pure heart, the steadfast heart, the Holy Spirit, the willing spirit. This is about lasting change that comes from the inside out. And only God can do this in us, right? Only God can bring this about. He has to create in us or renew in us a cleansed heart. It's not about just reordering our external activities, but about seeing God work by the power of his Holy Spirit from the inside out. David feared God's rejection. He had seen uh, God's presence leave Saul, and so he prayed, do not take your Holy Spirit from me. Do not abandon me. But we know in the case of the New Testament that the Holy Spirit is living inside us, and God has promised to never leave us or forsake us. But when is the last time we prayed for the restoration of these things, of our cleanliness, of our joy, joy of our salvation, and that spirit that desires to follow after God? In verses 13 through 17, we see affirming, David affirms his desire to serve God's purposes from the heart. Then I will teach transgressors your ways, and sinners will return to you. There's that resolve, almost like a vow that David gives that he's going to thank God. And we see many words that have to do with our, our speech, our communication. And in the hearing of others, he's going to declare what God has done. He's going to teach others and praying that God will use his example to lead them in repentance, restoration back to God. That he will be an encouragement to others about God's merciful ways. Now as the king of Israel, David was to be that representation of the kind of the model preeminent Israelite and leading the nation toward righteousness. So in a sense, he's blown that opportunity. He's done exactly the opposite. But in his prayer of confession, with his pattern of repentance, he can show Israel how to repent and be restored back to God. That full forgiveness can be given even to the worst sin of the most prominent sinner and therefore for the common sins of the ordinary people. In verse 14, he, he asked God to deliver him from blood guiltiness, that he had murdered an innocent man, and out of gratitude and thanksgiving and humility, that he would respond by singing aloud of God's praises. In verse 15, David asked for more opportunities to exalt the name of the Lord God. And then verses 16 and 17 to offer true sacrifices from the heart. Now, at face value, when we look at this, we think that God doesn't want sacrifices or offerings. But this contradicts verse 19, 
Remember that God established these sacrifices and offerings as instruction for his people, the people of Israel, to recognize their sin, to remind them of the price that, was, that had to be paid to restore them back to him. And that an innocent animal would be, their blood would be shed in, their, in, in its place, in their place. So this was to be done with fear and love and humility and thanksgiving. It was a casting oneself on the mercy of God. But without the heart, it would just be following the rules, just going through the motions, external compliance. And that's what David is saying. You're not pleased with just outward activity, external um, activity without that obedient heart. As we see in verse 6, God delights in loyalty in that heart. He delights when our hearts are broken and contrite over our sin. So the question is, when is the last time you affirmed your desire to serve God's purposes in this world? In verses 18 and 19, we move toward the community. And it's likely that the Psalms were collected over the years throughout the history of Israel. And it's likely that at this time, uh, uh, these two verses were included with uh, David's prayer for individual confession that the nation then responded and said, yes, Lord. And we pray for the same thing for us. Back to verses 18 and 19. Do good to Zion in your good pleasure. Build up the walls of Jerusalem. And then you will delight in right sacrifices and burnt offerings and whole burnt offerings. Then bulls will be offered on your altar. And so this is a response to David's individual prayer of confession. And so this is the response of the community, the nation of Israel. Lord, may it be so with us. The nation had, been, had gone into exile in 586 B.C. And they spent about 70 years uh, in exile in Babylon. The, the walls, the temple had been destroyed. The walls had been broken down. And so this is an, an, a prayer of asking God to do this work among the whole nation. That eventually God's favor would restore Israel back to the land. That God's, through his favor, that he would allow uh, the walls of Jerusalem to be rebuilt and then sacrifices to be offered again. The altar was built again. And we know this happened uh, through several prominent leaders in the Old Testament. The altar was established through the leadership of Zerubbabel and Joshua, the high priest. And then uh, the temple was rebuilt with encouragement from the prophets Haggai and Zechariah. The people were were reformed and publicly confessed their sin under the leadership of Ezra. And then finally the walls were rebuilt under Nehemiah. And then the people came together in in a dedication of the wall in Nehemiah chapter 12. It says this, And they offered great sacrifices that day and rejoiced, for God had made them rejoice with great joy. The women and children also rejoiced, and the joy of Jerusalem was heard far away. Now, where do we stand with all this? Well, according to the Old Covenant, the blood of animals, uh, were, the animals were sacrificed, their blood was shed, and God in his grace chose to forgive sin and be pleased with the actions of the individual and the community of Israelite worshipers. But these sacrifices were just types. They were just uh, representations looking forward to the sacrifice, the ultimate sacrifice of God's Son. We live under the new covenant. Jesus, the perfect Lamb of God, went to the cross to pay the penalty, the price of our sin, 
and restore us to relationship with God. It's beautiful to see in this psalm, Psalm 51, how that individual confession of David leads to the confession, restoration of the entire nation. So we approach God on the basis of his mercy. We acknowledge our sins before him. We ask him to restore us individually. We affirm our desire to serve God's purposes from our hearts. And we ask God for restoration as a community, as a family, as, as a church. So one last question is this. How do we pray this prayer in light of what Jesus, in light of who he is, in light of what he has done for us? In 2 Corinthians 5.21, it says that God made Christ, who knew no sin, to be sin on our behalf, that we might become the righteousness of God in him. Jesus, the preeminent Israelite, if you will, and then the supremely horrible sinner, identified with us. Now, in a sense, that Jesus did not have to, be, uh, have to pay the penalty for his own sin, but he re- took responsibility for ours. He felt that burden of our sin on his own sinless heart. And the Father saw in Jesus a sinner bearing in his body the sins of us all. Our sin was laid upon him. He became sin for us. Even from the very beginning of his ministry, Jesus submitted himself to the waters of baptism, that baptism of repentance, not repenting for his own sins, but identifying with us as sinners. Despite being with himself without sin, he identified with us so that he could lead us in expressing our sorrows for sin, our confession of sin, and our repentance and turning from sin. He felt the depths of our depravity and cried out with desperate urgency for a new heart for us, that in his vindication, in his resurrection, that he might be the new creation that would give us pure hearts before him. So what a wonderful representation for us, this psalm that, that Jesus prayed, that could pray on behalf of us as our mediator, as the perfect substitute for us. That heart's cry would come from Jesus himself, this psalm of repentance. Again, not for his own sin. Jesus was sinless, but identifying uh, on behalf of all of our sin. So we can pray this prayer in the name of Jesus, repenting from our sins. Christ Jesus, 2 Peter 3, Christ Jesus died once for all, the just for the unjust, in order that he might bring us to God. Only Jesus can lead us in our restoration before God. Psalm 32, another psalm of penitence, says, Blessed is the one whose transgression is forgiven, whose sin is covered. Blessed is the man against whom the Lord counts no iniquity, in whose spirit there is no deceit. We're going to have this opportunity now uh, to come before the table of the Lord. I'm going to ask Gary to come on up in the worship team. And I hope this has been an encouragement to you to simply ask God to reveal to you the areas of sin uh, against him and to restore your joy and your state of purity before him, to bring back that joy of salvation and to renew your life before him. Thank you, Bruce. It's uh, my privilege to be here today. It was.